I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, which is sponsored by New Baptist Covenant. Since 2007, Baptists have responded to President Jimmy Carter's invitation to tear down barriers in communities previously marked by division. Communities estranged in apathy. The movement called New Baptist Covenant invites us all to become bridge builders. If you or your congregation are ready to respond to the call for reconciliation and healing, if you are prepared to pave the way for racial justice, if you're ready to walk in the way of love, then join the journey with New Baptist Covenant. Together, let's build bridges toward beloved community. Start online at newbaptistcovenant.org and on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Now I hear the bells calling me to church. Welcome to all God's children. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go and talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Thank you for joining the Raceless Gospel Podcast, where word meets flesh, and where we gather to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship, and the structure of a church service. I am your host and podcast pastor, Starlet Thomas. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Josina Guest, who is my good friend and the managing editor at The Bitter Southerner. Born in Alabama, grew up in D.C., she now lives on a four-acre farm in rural Georgia with her husband, Michael. Their four children, two dogs, three cats, three goats, and several chickens. She writes about faith, race, family, violence, activism, and home, rooted in the rural and urban landscapes of her life and memory. Do follow her work and witness on Instagram at Still Rise Farm and on Twitter at Josina Guess. Today, we aim to flesh out what race means to us and for the church in North America, how we were introduced to it, and the implications of its embodiment. Won't you pray for us? And do pray with me. God, who is not a race-based deity, who is not pulled in the direction of our color lines, won't you guide us toward the truth of who we really are in you because we crossed our hearts and we're supposed to die with Christ in that baptismal water. Somehow race got up and keeps coming up. Help us to surrender, to throw our hands up, and then to put our hands in for your kingdom work. In the name of the raceless Christ who didn't come to pick a fight, we pray. Amen. When I was growing up in the South, there was a time in the worship service when persons stood up within the congregation and bore witness to what God was doing in their lives. It was called their testimony. (laughs) 
they began first giving honor to God, who is the head of my life, to the pastor, visitors, saints, and friends. Well, today I want to testify about the socio-political construct of race and how God delivered me from it. Socio-political. It is simply a long word meant to convey that we made it up, that we built race from the tip of our tongues up. James Baldwin said in The Price of the Ticket, as long as you think you're white, there's no hope for you. Zora Neale Hurston said, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. Brian Bantam says in The Death of Race, it is a word made flesh, but I digress. I want to share how God renewed my mind, changed my thinking about race, and I hope I've got a few witnesses. You see, race cuts deep. It gets under our skin and gives our lives physical meanings for which we have no say and no control. Race has been a problem for me since I was 19 years old when I learned that it had a say in who I would be. That my mother chose my father because he was light-skinned with good hair. I thought that nothing and no one but God should have that kind of creative power over me. I vowed that race never would again and began to question its authority faithfully. Race would not recreate me as a colored person as if white is not a color and then situate me in society based solely on physical appearance, texture of hair, shape of nose, size of lips, color of eyes, Race is a best colored skin contest and white privilege is the prize. It is the means by which American society doles out its perks for participating in its capitalist system of oppression. It makes persons of European descent white. They came to Ellis Island and had to give up their culture, language, and last names all to be called American. Ira Katz Nelson testifies to this in When Affirmative Action Was White. First, we were placed in these categories, and now we readily identify as colored people. Well, I simply refuse to participate, to live in side-by-side -side comparison to another human being. After years of prayer and study, I became aware that I was not created in a separate garden of Eden or some sweatshop kept off the books, that I was not made a little lower than socially colored white people, but that race was yet another tool of oppression, a means to a capitalist end and I would no longer buy into it. I was not colorblind. God had delivered me not to see the world post-racially, but pre-racially, because race was not in the beginning. Race was not a part of God's will or plan. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, while the name begins with the end in mind, we first have to talk through a few things and we will take our time strain our lives of racialized biases, prejudices, and stereotypes. We've got to talk it out, church. We've got to flesh it out, church. We've got to figure out how we got this way, why we are still segregated, and when it became okay. Why do we continue to let race have its way, the final say in our theology, our anthropology, our ecclesiology, and even our eschatology? And we've got to dig deep well below our epidermis because that only scratches the surface. We've got to listen to ourselves, really listen to ourselves, our sermons, our prayers, and the songs we sing. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. 
Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Because that's not how he loves them. That's how we love them. And instead of harmonizing with race, it is time that we start singing a different tune. So give yourself time and plenty of room as we flesh it out. Our scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 39, and it reads this way, Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to introduce to some and present again to others Josina Guess writer, activist, and managing editor at The Bitter Southerner. For today's sermon, we will engage in the tradition of call and response, a sacred back and forth on race and its embodiment in personal, sacred, and communal space. Feel free to join in as official members of the Amen Corner. Pray for us as we attempt to flesh it out. Jacques Barzan calls race a superstition. Charles Mills says we have agreed to a racial contract. Henry Louis Gates asks who has seen a black or red person, a white, yellow, or brown. These terms are arbitrary constructs, not reports of reality. With that being said, what does race mean to you? What are we really saying when we identify with and or by race? I think being a person born in the United States in the, you know, late 1970s to a man who in America is a black man and a woman who in America is a white woman, um, race means answering the questions of, you know, where are you from originally? And, um, and the questions of, of where do you belong in this country? And so I think I, identifying as biracial um, and using the language of race to, to orient myself in this country that has built entire you know, economic systems and, um, and social stratification based on race, um, it's, yeah, it's a way of, of placing myself in the narrative of being part of this country. Uh, so, you know, let's just put it out on the table that I have a problem with race and all its social colors. Yeah. Uh, but I'm in good company. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite uh, people, David Rodiger, is a professor of history, uh, and he has the same problem with whiteness in mm -hmm. particular. Uh, he writes in The Wages of Whiteness. Uh, race and the making of the American working class. He says, my question at age 18 was why friends wanted to be white mm -hmm. and why I didn't. 
Yeah. Uh, when did you identify with a race and when did you become a person of color mm -hmm. and why? Yeah, it's funny. My earliest memory of race is being in the backseat of, of my mom's driving my car. We're driving through D.C. in our neighborhood, which was mostly black. I'm going to just use the language of that and then looked out the window. I had, it was a beautiful day and some guys on the corner were like, get your head out the window, honky. And it was, you know, it was my neighborhood and I was enjoying that day. And I had this really strong sense of like, I don't, I'm not seen as belonging in this neighborhood among people that I, like at that moment, I wasn't even looking at them. I think they thought I was staring, you know, but it was like, I was just breathing the, the air. And my mom, I was like, mom, what is a honky? And she's like, well, you know, it's a rude word to describe a person who's white. And like looking at her and looking at myself, I realized, and I, you know, realizing who my dad is and our whole family, I thought, oh, that is so weird because they, I'm actually seen as white. <laughs> and so it's weird to like, you know, feel, because I think a lot of folks, you know, I can only speak from my own experience, but mine was of feeling like I had a case of mistaken identity, which I still struggle with. Um, of, uh, like, if my son wants to get to me, he'll always tease me and say, mom, you're so white. And I take it as an insult. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm being really, you know, honest and vulnerable here that like, uh, yeah, the whole thing of like, being accused of talking white or looking white or, you know, whatever, you know, the whole thing. Um, so, so it's a, um, when I identified as a person of color, I, I mean, the, I, so then the flip side of that, I also remember, you know, going to elementary school, you know, starting public school in first grade and um, students saying, well, you are black. There are no, there are no mixed people, you, you know, in America. And, and I'm telling you, this was a first grade conversation in DC. You know, and you know that, right? Like that's, that's the way it, is and probably was, you know, and it was like, to be in this country, you must be black or white. You cannot identify as mixed. You must identify as black. And I said, my mom is white and I love her. My dad's black. I'm mixed. And I was like, and I was firm in that. And then I found this funny, not funny, but I found a note I'd written to myself. I made a time capsule when I was like 14 and I wrote in it, I'm black. I'm black. I'm just going to be black. Like I wrote it down as a statement because I was so tired at that point of the, um, the pressure and the sense of like, you know, um, you can't be in both camps. And, and, and it was interesting. Like I, I found that time capsule when I was like 40, you know, and cleaning out my parents' old stuff. And I looked at it and I thought, I didn't hold on to that. You know, I mean, I, I made it a decision and it was funny too, because people sometimes tease me like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I would have had to work so hard to, to put on this, I mean, what I call performative blackness where, you know, and, and I just, I, I wasn't going to do it. It was exhausting. Um, just as exhausting as I'm sure someone trying to pass for white. I mean, how exhausting would that be to, to completely deny a whole, whole part of yourself? And I know that's part of the narrative. And like, um, I didn't, I didn't want to do either. I was like, yeah, I actually am mixed. I'm capital M mixed, you know? Um, and, uh, and so by, you know, by the end of high school, I was firm in that. And, um, you know, um, so, so yeah. So for me, becoming a person of color was simply becoming myself. I mean, being, 
being fully comfortable to say like, this is my whole heritage, you know, this is my whole ethnic background and all the baggage of it and being descendant of both enslaved and enslaver and, um, and, you know, underground railroad fighters. And, you know, you always want to be proud of like the, the folks that were what you want to say on the right side of history, but also um, the folks that, <laughs> that get it wrong, <laughs> you know, so on both sides, you know, and that's the thing. There are no saints on either side. I think, um, I mean, there's saints on both sides. There's sinners on both sides, on all sides, because we're human. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I, I very much appreciate uh, you naming uh, this, this call to pick a side mm-hmm. and that I, you didn't want to pick a side of yourself mm-hmm. and that you are embodying two warring identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very much appreciated uh, the vulnerability in that. And, but then you have this theme of being and belonging uh, that you talk about and race for me is a body identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a story about our bodies and what they mean to us and to other people. Uh, so I wanted to know, you know, you know, from your perspective, um, what, what story, what narrative um, from race informs us as the body of Christ? What does the coloredness do? How do you see that um, as the hands and feet of Christ or mm-hmm. as God on the go with Christ or word made flesh? How do you see all of that playing out in terms of being and belonging? I don't know if I am exactly answering your question. I'm going to answer what's coming to my mind because. um, That's fair. Well, because in terms of being and belonging in the church, I have struggled sometimes with feeling like a second generation integrationist of of being the grandchild of um, grandparents who left um, what we call the, the black church. So that was not my tradition. Um, because my, my grandparents both converted to Quakerism in the 1940s. And so, you know, they were like reading Howard Thurman and, and, you know, sort of, yeah, into, you know, mysticism and, and, and contemplative worship um, before that was like a thing that, we, you know, wasn't, anyway, so it was like, um, so it's an interesting thing when I think about, um, my grandparents' spiritual paths and how they chose, um, you know, to worship in a way that felt sincere and true for them. But that was, you know, a very um, unconventional form of Christianity and um, even less, uh, less conventional within our understanding of, um, of expressions of, of Black Christianity, you know? And so, um, it is very hard to find a church that is whole, right? Where you can be your whole self because honestly, like silent worship nourishes me. But I, when I joined a gospel choir in college and got to experience the fullness of, you know, worship that my, that my grandparents chose to leave behind, I felt a sense of coming home and a sense of belonging, but I also longed for that deep, silence and the, and the space to be, um, to be questioning and the space to be um, just seeking God together in a really humble, silent place, you know? And so- But doesn't that yeah. speak to race though, yeah. and that you can't have both? Yeah, it, But it if does. you're going to be yeah. in a racial reality, right. you can't have both. Right. And also, if the system is not set up that way. Right. And just to say something about my grandparents' conversion is that they, they both came to, to a clear sense that that's where they wanted to be, but their very first experience of of Quakerism was going to the meeting and saying, we want to be married here. 
And the guy was like, but there's a black church down the street. <laughs> Mercy. You know, so Help saying, them, Jesus. But, but the thing is, Nana knew what she wanted. She knew where God had called her and she wasn't going to let that stop her. But I mean, that's the thing that's really important to call out is, you know, especially the ones that find themselves most liberal or most welcoming. It's like, no, there was always the they are the black Quakers. Um, and uh, yeah, and that could be a whole other conversation, but um no, it's a part yeah, of this conversation because I was going to ask yeah. you. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about um, baptismal identity. Yeah. Um, J. David wrote in the introduction to growing up black. He said, "Probably the single most important event in the life of any African American child is this recognition of his coloredness, hmm. with all the implications of the fact." Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you, get you to chime in on uh, what does baptism offer if the new identity in Christ does not challenge or change the fact that one's coloredness remains the most important. Hmm. How yeah. is it that you can be baptized in Jesus name and come up with, uh, you're free, you're delivered, you have victory in Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, but you still maintain an oppressive yeah. identity or a domineering identity. Mm-hmm. Why does that still remain the central? Yeah, I um, mean, I, it seems hard to, to, to not think about the ways in which enslavers used baptismal identity as a way to force compliance, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. um, so compliance. Or to withhold it. Yeah. And say that because you have no soul, we Mm -hmm. will not baptize you. Right. Or, you know, because you're a good Christian, you're going to, you're going to be a good slave, you know? And so I just think, um, we are so, um, so far. And I guess the thing I'm coming from an even odder place where I'm like, I, I did have a water baptism and I love the sacraments, but I also have this like uh, tradition that doesn't even practice water baptism where I'm, so I'm kind of, I'm going to just get Pentecostal over here and be like, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's going to do it because the baptism by water, if that's all it is, it is, it's just a show, right? And it's just a physicality that, um, you know, we can't, escape from these physical trappings but when the holy spirit sets you free you're free indeed and the, and whoever this you know that's what it says but we don't talk like that no, but i do i'm asking i'm gonna claim my freedom i am free and i and i think in my own liberation other people can be more liberated you know and the, and mm-hmm. like you know when you're around someone who's at home in their skin and i can only be at home in the body god gave me and I don't do myself or anyone around Say that. I, I can only be Say that, Josina. In the body that God gave me and to live Say into that. that. Come on and speak a word. You know? And so like we, by living into our full selves, liberate others to do that. And it's not like I made that up. But you know that quote that's attributed to Mandela that's not really by him, but it's basically about, you know, when you let your light shine, you free others to let their light shine. It's a good quote. I think a woman wrote it and then people say Mandela wrote it. But <laughs> Um, Tell the truth and shame the devil today. But um, it's a good quote. And and I guess it's in it and it's words to live by. So, you know, the older I get, the more free I'm going to work on getting, you know, as free as that little girl had her head out the window, just trying to breathe the air, you know, that's all we can do. So well said. So well said. We talked about being belonging. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about race, not being a biological reality, but it has no scientific basis, but there's some real social consequences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do we deal with the real consequences of, of racism right. um, while calling into question race as a means of, identif- mm-hmm. of identifying ourselves? How do we, can you strike a chord? Can you find a balance? Can you say, uh, 
you know, I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, you can't treat me like this according to how you perceive me or according to how I look. Right. Um, while still addressing the fact that there's, there's serious injustice in the yeah. world. Yeah. While race does not exist, racism does, you know, and Absolutely. racism is, um, you know, why we have, you know, mass incarceration and these huge gaps and disparities in wealth and access and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all, you name it. So, I mean, I think you name it. Yeah. Um, this is not a call for colorblindness or a exactly. post-racial reality. Right. And that's I part, speak yeah. to um, the pre-racial existence. So in the beginning was God, yeah. not in the beginning was race. That's always my right. where I land. But I also want to deal with the real issues that race causes in the world. Right. Uh, like I marched all summer long. Right. Um, for right. Maude Arbery, for Breonna Taylor, for George Floyd, mm -hmm. all, all summer mm -hmm. long. Uh, right. So this is not to suggest that because... You know, I don't color people in. Right. I don't see the real effects of racism right. and prejudice and all its progeny. So I'm wondering how how we can do both, how mm -hmm. I can honor, mm -hmm. um, you know, this this baptismal identity that we've been talking about, being mm -hmm. born again and alive again with Christ without the restrictions that society would place on me, mm -hmm. while still calling out yeah. and calling into, into question any type of unjust practices um, against my body. Mm -hmm. Why can't we do both? Mm -hmm. How can we do it? I think you just do Why it. Why can't we? You do. Again, you keep asking. You act like there's bars where there aren't. You know, I'm just saying. Oh, no, not at all. I'm I asking a general question. Why the church doesn't? Because we still oh, girl, have segregated worship. I'm sorry. I just, I'm not going to wait on the church to do what it is. It's had, it's had its chance. No, I'm serious. Like, if, if, you know, the church had every opportunity at every turn to stand on the side of justice. And there mm. are churches and individuals within the church that have and that do. And so be one of them. That's all I can say. And if you're in a church where the leadership isn't part of that, challenge it, question it, or brush the dust off your sandals and move on. And if you're in leadership, then be the leader God calls you to be. I mean, that's what I just, I just don't have. I feel an amen coming you know, up in my spirit. I'm just like, just I feel an amen. do it. And that's what's so sad is that there are so many, I mean, that's what's, I mean, I'll, I'll be, there are pastors who are losing their congregations because folks are saying, well, we just want the gospel. Why are you making it political? You know? Is that how they sound, Josina? I don't know. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be making fun of people that have made an idol of their comfort. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be laughing at them. I should be crying for them and praying for them because they want church to be a place where um, they can, you know, not have their power and money and access questioned and not have to think and not have to work and not have to be upended. Like, so, you know, I think. So do you yeah. think if there's no hope for the church, we should just leave the church behind and go <laughs> forward with the vision God has given us? That's a real question. Um, I don't know. No, I would say that the people. Let them figure it out. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> that do the work, like whatever that work is. And I guess I spent yeah, I, I mean, right now I'm not currently working for a Christian organization. I'm not currently and a part of anything except for like it's very small little Quaker group that meets in my little town, you know, and I, I just have, that's just what I'm doing right now and I'm okay with that. And so um, I would say surround yourself with the people that, that are pushing you to live into that work, you know, and, and, and then, and then do that work. So whether that's part of 
a church or not. I, I that's where I am personally. You know, I'm not trying to say that. Oh, you know be, where I am. You know, yeah. I'm not preaching to a choir. Yeah, yeah. I preach to myself right. about racelessness and post-racial identity yeah. and a racial being. Mm-hmm. These churches. Come on, we're still segregated mm-hmm. on Sunday morning and, and thereafter. Yeah. And I guess the thing that's interesting too is that some of the most integrated churches are some of the most oppressive evangelical, quote unquote, evangelical, you know, the like colorblind thing that is different where it's really white dominated, white male dominated, usually also very um, homophobic and, and uh, like patriarchal and like very much a different kind of vibes so i'm just saying like just because people get together and stand side by side and la- raise their hands together you know that's doesn't not, mean they're together it doesn't mean they're together and it doesn't mean that they're working to transform these bigger systemic things which are so overwhelming and hard it's kind of like well look you know i look at how mixed this group of people is um that's a good thing but there's like these there's these multiple it's like a both and like yes i love being in mixed groups of people i'm not saying people should segregate but i'm also saying that alone isn't the whole like that's that level and then there's these systemic levels and there's just the the intellectual level the brain level like the work that it sounds like you're fleshing it out you know people need to be re-educated and so you know i think you know um as an, as an editor, like in the work that I'm doing, I think about the narratives and the stories we tell, the stories we tell each other. And so I, I am currently focusing on storytelling as a means of, you know, helping to, to people actually be re-educated about history, you know, and, and claiming and understanding narratives that they might have never heard or understood before. And so I think, um, you know, the truth shall set them free. <laughs> so it sounds like you're yeah. flushing it out, though, yeah. that you do have a yeah. work and a word for the church about what they need to be doing. Yeah. Um, and isn't that important about the stories we tell ourselves? Because the mm-hmm. stories we're telling right now are not helping us right. politically or, or ecclesia- uh, ecclesiologically or otherwise. Mm-hmm. We are still very much divided, even after this right. Uh, election. Right. Uh, with the, what did the seventy six percent of evangelicals, socially colored white evangelicals, mm. continued on and voted for uh, Donald Trump? Yeah. After four years of hate and divisiveness, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Something has to be said for that. So, are you going to be? Are you? Do you see yourself as like a prophet on the outside, calling <laughs> out, repent? Where do you see yourself? Yeah, in this? I mean, I would say I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm the one shouting repent, and uh, and also. Um, yeah, like wanting to just create space for deep listening, you know, to create space for learning. And and I guess I haven't completely given up on humanity. Like I believe that people can learn, people can be taught and can grow and can, and I believe that repentance is possible, right? I mean, and that's the thing I think that, um, but with repentance comes work it's not just like i'm sorry and i'm gonna keep keep the knife in the and that's where it's like even biden's acceptance speech i was like ooh, I'm just gonna come together for unity but wait a minute where's the justice like how can we just come together if those people that voted for this man voted for leaving refugees out voted for um you know police killing black men with impunity voted for a military, um, you know, state or whatever, like they, they chose something that it's hard to say, oh yeah, let's just 
I'll take hands in unity. Like we need to talk about this. And, and a lot of it I believe is, is the, um, the, the, in, the refusal to accept leadership from a person that they perceive of as not their own, you know, like if, I mean, so it's like, if, if, if I had any like pointer for white people, it would be be under the leadership of a black person, like uh, truly, you know, like, um, don't be in charge, <laughs> you know, see how that feels to learn from, to have, to have a pastor that's, that's your leader, you know, um, that doesn't look like you, you know, I mean, and again, like, that's a tricky thing to say because it's like, oh, great. Okay, I'll go check that off my list. I'm going to go find a black leader to follow. You know what I mean? It's like, no, no, it's not about you. I'm not saying it that way. You know, like somehow for, for people to remove themselves from the center of the narrative is really the hope. Um, but also recognize that they're there for, that every, we're all here for a really good purpose and that these, um, that we are all oppressed by racism you know it destroys all of us i'm your host and podcast pastor reverend starlet thomas we'll be right back with more of the raceless gospel from good faith media at the christian citizen you'll find stories about justice mercy and faith our award-winning content is provocative timely and relevant Sign up for our weekly newsletter. Listen to our free podcast. Connect with our community, The Christian Citizen. Prophetic, factual, diverse, intersectional. Join us today at christiancitizen.us. Thanks for making space for that church announcement. Now back to the rest of my back and forth with Josina Guess. So what story yeah. should we be telling ourselves? You mentioned narrative hmm. before. What story should we yeah. be telling? Should our bodies be telling? Well, or what, is, what, are we, what is our body saying about us yeah. in our society if this is the way in which we move and we live yeah. and we have our being, uh, that we are divided in this way, that mm -hmm. we look at someone and say, you know, just based on how you look, mm -hmm. I don't like you. I want nothing to do with you and that you're righteous mm -hmm. and you're not, that we have our own system well, of, we of judging we really need to study like the global genocides. You know, I have, I know a woman who's working on a project of like serious genocides across the world. Like we need to understand what Pol Pot did in Cambodia. Like we need to understand the conflict in Rwanda between Hutu and Tutsi, where if you were to look at Hutu and Tutsi people, you'd be like, oh, I don't see a difference. Believe me, I have been with people who consider themselves one or the other and seen the pure disgust come over the face of someone who's like, I will not be that person's neighbor, right? Like we need to understand the Holocaust. We need to understand, um, you know, the Armenian genocide because I think that's what's the a huge problem in our country is we're so American centered and so black white that we don't mm -hmm. recognize. Um, Cause I was just talking to my son about this, about racism. I said, oh, I'm gonna have this podcast with my friend. And he said, well, you know, if racism goes away there will be another thing. What will be that next Absolutely. thing? And so it's like, Absolutely. we like to figure out how to not have disgust towards another human being because of the way they look or because of their tribe. I mean, it's like tribalism. Like, um, so I would say it's that deep, deep, like, core you know love your neighbor as you love yourself so love yourself you know love yourself mm -hmm. 
and then no, that see, goes to the question I was going to ask see you. Every single person as your neighbor, and love them. You know, like what if we lived yeah, yeah. that? Jesus made it so plain, and that's what's like. I haven't given up on him because he was like, of all the commandments, that's it. Can y'all do this? Can you get it together, people? Because I made it like a sentence, right? Because if you're doing this, you're loving me. Like, y'all, you know, it's not even mm-hmm. that hard. I mean, it is that hard, right? It's so hard. Yeah, but we continue to circle back, mm-hmm. Therese. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah. So we're going to do nothing with it because mm-hmm. we'll just replace it with something else. We'll continue to live with something, with a system that doesn't work because we know we're going to create another unjust system. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about race? Because it's going to keep coming up. Right. We keep having these reckonings, these com- these conversations, mm-hmm. um, these really graphic and horrific murders right before our eyes. So are we just to sit and do nothing? And, and how is the church going to get involved in this work that you've mentioned? Because mm-hmm. um, this won't be done on a Sunday morning, not in worship from 11 to 12. Yeah. Not in a pew, mm-hmm. not from a pulpit. Yeah. I mean, and that's where it just... So how is the, how is the church going to get involved and engaged in that? Because I don't see that mm-hmm. happening in a Sunday school. Certainly not at a business meeting. <laughs> not at a committee meeting either. Mm. That's, that's not the work that the church does. Yeah. You know, we come in, we lift our hands, and we extend our hands to pray for others, and then we put our hands, well, we used to, back, you know, back before the pandemic, honey. <laughs> you put your hand in the offering plate, and then you wave your hand at your neighbor, you slap your mm-hmm. neighbor high-five, and you go home. The work that we are talking about, this justice and reconciliation and naming and really looking at someone and fully engaging in their story, that doesn't happen at church. We do something else. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. We don't, we don't share all things in common. We don't go from house to house like in the book of Acts. We do something else. We do something completely different. Mm-hmm. So how, how are we going to get to that when that's not what we do when we go to church again with our bodies? Well, I mean, I'd say the pandemic's been a great opportunity because people are not going. I mean, many are not going to church with their bodies. Some, some are not. Some, some are not. Some are. Some are finding church in other ways. So I guess I would speak mm-hmm. to the larger, wider. The church is not a building, but to the church is the people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I can't really, I mean, speak directly into those institutions, but but I would say like. Um. And I just keep going back to it, but, but do it wherever you live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are the neighbors that you have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where whatever work you have, that's the work you have, you know, and do it like, like, and so, and, and whatever God presses on your conscience to, to move on, move on it. And if there's nothing pressing you, then pay, like, pay attention to that. Like figure out what's so offensive and ask yourself, yeah. why yeah. Why does it bother you so much when you see me say Black Lives Matter? Why does that threaten you? You know, like if, if you're in a church or a community or a sense of understanding yourself where you think Black Lives Matter cannot be spoken by a Christian, because I've heard that said, you know what I mean? I'm like, ask yourself mm-hmm. and interrogate your response. Um, and your understanding, and your understanding of the Imago Dei. Yeah, right. And, and your understanding, again, of, of, of who you think you are and who you think Jesus is mm-hmm. and, and who you think um, your neighbor is, right? Because it's, Yeah, but how has the church yeah. in North America shaped identity if that's offensive? Right. <laughs> oh, because God is an yeah. old socially colored white man right. with a beard and Jesus is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, it's, it's all about these images. So I'm just wondering yeah. uh, what the church's role is moving forward in shaping identity. Right. And, if and that's I an offensive it's, statement. It's about tearing down idols. I mean, like literally mm-hmm. taking the white Jesus off your church wall. That would be a step. For the churches that have white Jesuses on their walls. you going to ask them to get rid of their white Jesus? Yeah, because it's a distraction. Th- wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You're asking a lot because you know many people believe Jesus you know what? was and is white and is coming back as white. Yeah. He's coming back and again. And they can take that American flag. So you're flag, saying take that down? And they need to take the American flag out of the sanctuary too. Oh, because you. I'm telling you, my friend, <laughs> the nationalism. Oh, you going to step in it today? I'm step in it. Look, Come on in here and lose. speak a word. Speak saying, a word. Like, if you have an image of yourself and a yeah. flag of your nation, which yeah. is antithetical to Christian love, Y'all need to check yourselves. I mean, you need to check. No, it says God so loved only America. It doesn't say God so loved the world. Right. Or they say red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in the sight. You know what I mean? Like, isn't it interesting <laughs> that you sing that? Because you know, that's 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 not my jam. I know it's not. But my that's not either. how Jesus loves the little I know, children. I know. And so but we've incorporated like, into our hymnology, our theology, and then it trickles right. down into our ecclesiology. Right. We start dividing so, people up yeah, based so that we way. Need to interrogate our hymns, interrogate our structures, yes, ma'am. interrogate yes, ma'am. the architecture. I mean, the whole thing. Yes, you know, ma'am. Like, and that's where I think, like I said, I do think this is an opportunity for people to be okay with, if, if taking a hike in the woods is where you're finding God speaking to you or sitting in silence with a few friends or singing with friends, whatever it is. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. But what are they going to do with their building fund money? You know, Clothes the, the naked, chicken dinners they sell. What we go? <laughs> but, but how about in a way that like, the naked learn to sew and the hungry learn to fish. Yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. Where yeah, yeah. those skills are taught by, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, like what if, can we imagine like a liberated society where we're sort of post-capitalist, you know, like all these things. I don't know. You're and, asking for a lot of change. And, you know, we don't do well with that. We don't. The church does not do well with that, though it talks about, we pray all the time, mm-hmm. uh, thou kingdom come. Yeah. But it looks so American, mm-hmm. looks so much like empire, mm-hmm. looks so much like a business. Right. And um, we pray for this newness and this new relationship, this new kinship. Yeah. But then we do more of the same. Yeah. And that's right. You know, and it's hard, too, because it's also like what. What would it really look like, you know, for. Mm-hmm for us to actually be one, you know, (laughs) like, because Mm -hmm. even, um, but can we be when our bodies are so divided? Yeah. You know, my mother's African-American. My dad Mm -hmm. is African-American and European-American. So Mm -hmm. I would be an octoroon Mm -hmm. or a quadroon. Is that right? Quadroon. I'm a quadroon. I I always thought quadroon was like, I think I'm a quadroon. I think according to race, white parent and a mix. So I'm an octoroon. No, there's another word that's fallen out of practice. Which one is it's it? It's not quadroon or octoroon, because usually they made those words for all the offspring that the white, that the enslavers <laughs> were producing. So that, You got to get my math together. Which one is well, it now? So what I'm saying and, is like, so because I have a husband who is considered white, my children would be considered quadroons, right? Because they have I don't know. one black grandparent. We're doing race mathematics right now, church. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's absolutely it's absurd. absurd. That was my right. point. So the point is it's right. absolutely absurd. Right. If absurd. you're so divided against ourselves, how can we then call for unity? Right. 
if we have divided ourselves up and told some people right. they're less than human or one third mm -hmm. of a human and told other folks you have no soul and therefore we're not going to baptize right. you, how can the church come together? Right. How can you be unified right. when the identities are divisive? Well, you know what? Okay, I like Sinead O'Connor and she has this song that goes... I don't have an Irish accent, but she's, you know, if there's ever going to be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving mm -hmm. because we always want to mm -hmm. just have amnesia, but she just said, like, if there's ever yeah. going to be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving. And we're not so good at that, but to remember and to lament and to grieve, you know, grief is mm. terrible. We do all that we can to avoid grief, the grief in our own bodies, the grief in our families, the trauma. But if we can remember and grieve, and again, like she's speaking to this from the perspective of oppression in Ireland. Again, this is like a human mm. experience where it's like magnified through race in our country, but like, these ways of destroying people, you know, are, and I'm not, and again, this is not to dismiss the intense destruction that race is doing, not just in the US, but in other countries as well and in other mm -hmm. histories. But um, uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I guess I would encourage um, that people learn history, teach history, tell their stories, learn their family stories, learn their whole family stories learn about the yeah. heroes, learn about the villains, you know, like I was thinking, what if all those people that did lynchings on a Sunday morning, my Lord, and told their children not to tell nobody, told their grandchildren, like, what if those grandchildren who are alive, those children who are alive, those lynchers who are alive could remember and grieve because that's like the problem we're in. We are still in a state of amnesia of enormous trauma and perpetual trauma, you know? And if we could talk about um, the ways that crack cocaine destroyed black communities, you know, destroyed the neighborhoods I was living in in DC, the ways that blackness was completely under attack um, as a kind of, I mean, you're, I'm gonna sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it really felt like a kind of genocide, you know, happening. Mm -hmm. The, with the enormous gun violence that still happens in black communities and the ways in which then black life is so diminished that police then can carry out these atrocities. I mean, it's all wrapped up. I mean, it's just this, this repetitive mm -hmm. trauma that we have a hard time remembering and we have a hard time grieving. And so um, me being born in the South, that was definitely an issue because mm -hmm. um, I ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and they mostly began with why. Yeah. Uh, my mother is a beautifully dark woman, mm -hmm. beautifully dark woman. Yeah. And I couldn't for the life of me understand why she did not. She used to put on makeup that lightened her skin. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it deeply troubled me. My introduction, introduction to, to black and to blackness mm -hmm. was very traumatic. Yeah. It was nothing good about it. It was a self-hatred. Yeah. Um, so I see race from a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which I was introduced to it, it was, it was incredibly negative. And it didn't come mm -hmm. from socially colored white people. It didn't come from European Americans. It came from African Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, 
It was egregious, mm -hmm. uh, the ways in which the body was named and discussed and described. And it was all about race. There was no getting around it. Mm -hmm. Everything was racialized. Everything had a color to it. And I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. Mm -hmm. There was no way around it. There was no escape. It was who I was always going to be no matter what. Mm -hmm. and I was pinned down to it, trapped in my own body. And I couldn't believe, how could I be trapped in my body and be a Christian and be free? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't talk, you couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you flesh something out in cultures where silence, mm -hmm. silence is the way. Yeah. And we don't talk about that. We don't air our dirty laundry. That's not something we, we share with other people. That's, that's in the past. You know, there's a, a, a lot of folks uh, from my mother's generation. They don't talk about that stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. We leave that in the past where it belongs. Why y'all got to bring everything up? That's what I don't like about your generation. Mm -hmm. Y'all got to share everything. You got to talk about everything. Some things you need to leave in the past. How are we going to flesh it out when some people don't want to talk about it? Mm -hmm. And their silence is violent. Like you ask the wrong question and they won't speak to you. I'm just talking about my family. Mm -hmm. They won't speak to you forever. Right. I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've asked some questions that have, that have, that have, that have gotten me some punishments of that sort. So how do you, how do you flush things out? How do you come into being and know who you truly are when some partners are silent partners? Again. And they're very content in not, in not naming experience and being, you know, bound to this particular identity and not giving persons opportunities to really think through it. The question that set me free was, do I have to be black? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and the fact that I can't question the identity is a problem for me. Right, and I guess that's the thing, you are a mother. And you get to do that work in answering your son's questions. Oh, he's you, already, right. he's good. He's set. But, but that's what I'm saying. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. You get to be a voice where there was silence. You know, like, mm. you may not be able to go back generationally to get the elders to speak to you, but then you get to become an elder. Like, we get to become the elders, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, Oh, uh, that's know, good. Like you, I'm not that old, Josina. Oh, You're not gonna keep oh, coming for me. Now. I'm just saying, like, we're not gonna be elders for another forty years. No, no, okay, no, let's get that on the record. Now. Cliff, I, put I, that I, on the record. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, there, we get, we have agency and we have power yeah, yeah. to speak, and yeah, yeah. so, and we have people who depend on us who are listening, and so, um, you know, and that's where it's it's also tricky because I do think about trauma, like the people that carried out a trauma might have a silence that's different than the people that were traumatized and the ways that you know epigenetic memories mm -hmm. and all this stuff I just think like I guess there's a difference between like poking a knife in a wound and taking the bandage off so that the light can shine in the wound and it can heal right and yeah. so for folks that yeah. are deeply traumatized yeah silence might be their only response because everything feels like a knife in the wound but so that's, so it may not be like, ask, 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 or tell me more, but it might just be like, let's just take off the bandage. Like, let's allow fresh air and light. And I know I'm speaking metaphorically, but I'm just saying like. It's generationally yeah, though. There's is, a silent, there's yeah. a silent generation mm -hmm. that will not. Right. That does not engage. Not just my family. They just won't engage. Mm -hmm. I guess my final question mm -hmm. is, you know, we're talking about race. We're talking about the body. Mm -hmm. uh, we spend a lot of time on this epidermis, this, this superficial portion that simply is meant to cover the skeletal structure. And I'm wondering what we see in race. Mm -hmm. Why do we focus so much attention on color? Yeah. 
what 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 are we what are we seeing? What are we trying to flesh out? What are we really trying to say mm-hmm. when we color people in or when we see people's epidermis and say you are black, white, red, yellow, beige if you're bicultural? What are we trying to say? Well, I, what are we trying to flesh well, out? Well, that's where I think I can't. I think when you say we, I don't know what to do with I, that because like when some people do it, it's a means of of power. You know, it's a means of uh, those ones have, you know, if you think about the grids that they used to make of like, these are the racial categories, these ones are this way, these ones are that way. That's how it meant when some people did it. When other people do it, it is beauty. It is, mm. I see you. I see you as you fully are. That's good. And I'm going to color That's you good. in. And I, I actually remember when I was a pre-K teacher, I was with a student who was the only girl with darker brown skin in the class. And I picked up the crayon and she asked me to color with her and I took a brown crayon and I was coloring lightly because I had been conditioned to not even color brown people dark brown. You know what I mean? It was a, mm. and she picked up the crayon and she colored herself dark. She said, I'm brown, I'm this brown, look. And she held the crayon. This is closer to my color than that. You know, she was, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and so like, um, even though it wasn't fully it, there was a sense of recognition yeah. and identity and recognizing that she was fully um, embracing the color that she was with gratitude. Like she's like, yeah, I'm actually not this pale, like half, you know, lightly colored can. And it was really um, helpful to me, I think, spending time with mm-hmm. children and, and, and thinking mm-hmm. about the ways that, because um, also like my daughter who would appear to be what people would say white, and that's the thing I've had to struggle with. In society, I have to embrace that my kids will be treated as white and that they need to therefore make choices to recognize that. You know, like, because I want, I, I had to divorce myself from the belief of in the one drop rule and be like, mm. you know what? I am their mother. We are a family. But when they walk around in this society, they are perceived differently than I am. But when my daughter was very young, she colored herself with a brown crayon because she saw herself in me, you know? And so it's a very interesting thing when, um, you know, the crayons we choose or the colors we choose. And I just think like... Um, that is so very helpful. Yeah. Uh, what, what you just named for me is that with race, we live from the social perception. Mm-hmm. And what I'm calling for is self-reflection. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering why mm-hmm. that's all we focus on. Right. Well, the, how do you get to the soul of a person right. if all you, if you can't get past the shape right. of nose, the size of right. eyes? Well, I guess that's the thing. It's, what I was trying to say is that there is, everyone should have a place where they feel at home. Right. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. so it's like, what I was trying to say is like in our home, we are full. And I hope that anyone that walks in my door has a sense of like, this porch I belong, this room I belong, you know, like no matter what language they speak, no matter what, they have a sense of home. I would hope, you know, that's like the home I want to cultivate. Amen. And that's the culture that we are cultivating. Right. And so, Amen. but we step into this other culture, there's multiple cultures, mm-hmm. right? We live in a multicultural mm-hmm. society and these cross-cultural mm-hmm. interactions where I step into other places and I can see the looks that I might get, you know, and this sense of, and then, and then I just realized, okay, I'm not going to let that have power over me at the same time. I know that living in the body that I live in, in the space that I live, I have a freedom to move through these different cultures 
more easily. Like I recognize that. And I, and so that's where it's like, I cannot, I haven't had the lived experience of the, the closed door, you know, the, the absolute utter shut outness that happens, you know? Um, and, and so, um, I guess, yeah, our, our job is to keep on creating spaces of welcome as much as we possibly can and to make every space a space of true, and I'm not talking about like surface lottie dotty. I'm talking about true belonging and true welcome. Um, so, so well said. Yeah. So well said and a good place to end. Yeah. We started at being and belonging yeah. and we end with welcome. Let's do it. No, because I feel the same way with my house. Yeah, um, yeah. That you can bring your full self in and not have to leave anything out. Exactly. And that whatever society has to say about you, mm-hmm. you don't have to say it in here. Right. Those words are not welcome. So whatever ugly word, mm-hmm. uh, inappropriate word, embarrassing word that tries to follow you into the house, I hope it mm-hmm. you know, trips <laughs> trips on the way into the door. So I'm glad to hear that you also do that. Yeah. It's really encouraging, Josina. Yeah. I want to thank our guest, Josina Guess and extend to you, our listeners, an opportunity to know this Jesus, who does not love you according to the social coloring of skin, but unconditionally. This Jesus is not the one that you can color in. Invite him to journey with you as you flesh out God's will for your life, which I pray would include all God's children, no matter how society describes them or defines them. You can support the work and witness of the Raceless Gospel Podcast by giving to Good Faith Media. Please visit our website at www.goodfaithmedia.org. This concludes this episode of the podcast, but not the conversation. Let's keep talking. Head to our Fellowship Hour over at Raceless Gospel Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Absent in the body, but present in the Wi-Fi spirit. I'll see you there. Don't miss author and theologian Michael Bledsoe in our second Sunday, also known as episode two. Pray for us because there might be a church business meeting after this conversation. But hear us out. It's ready for you now. If you stayed for the amen, then you are special, committed. You've got what it takes to build bridges. So hear this. Since 2007, Baptists have responded to President Jimmy Carter's invitation to tear down barriers in communities previously marked by division. Communities estranged in apathy. The movement called New Baptist Covenant invites us all to become bridge builders. If you or your congregation are ready to respond to the call for reconciliation and healing, if you are prepared to pave the way for racial justice, if you're ready to walk in the way of love, then join the journey with New Baptist Covenant. Together, let's build bridges toward beloved community. Start online at newbaptistcovenant.org and on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.